0: Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore, or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week on Women Who Move Nations, I'm joined by Lila Francis, President of Middle East and Hyderabad for Keolis and Chair of the Board for Keolis Downer in Australia. Thanks so much for speaking to us, Lila. Oh, it's great to
1: have you, Michelle. Thank you.
0: Today we want to talk about your work, your professional achievements and really what you've learned along the way. So to start with can you give us an overview of your current roles and focus areas and how you ended up at Keolis Downer? So I'm an employee
1: of Keolis and I've been with Keolis for 12 years. Um, So the background I have in um, public transport is one of both commercial and operations and that fits really well with my existing role. So I chair our board in in Australia, which is of course a joint venture Cureless Downer, the joint venture between Cureless and Downer organization. And that includes uh, not only of course, chairing the board meeting, but the oversight of the business. We have a fantastic CEO in Australia, David Franks, and I'm there to support him and his team to make sure that we operate well and safely, and also that we are growing the business. As well as that though, I have other regions that I'm responsible for, and that's the Middle East in India. So in the Middle East, we are also uh, in public transport, of course, as an operator and maintainer in a joint venture in Qatar, where there's a new Greenfield Metro and Light Rail in operation. And then specifically in India, our existing business is centered around Hyderabad, which is a Metro, which is also Greenfield and has been operating for uh, two years. Um, and as well as that, we're looking to develop in India. So the sum up, if I was to give a sum up, is that it's really focused around ensuring safe safe, and excellent operations for the customer um, and also the growth of the business.
0: Yeah, great. So how did you end up in your role at Keolis?
1: it's a good question. You know, my background originally as a school teacher um, teaching business studies and economics, but then um, very quickly I moved into the transport sector And I moved in as a management trainee, which was a a fantastic opportunity because I worked in a small rail company in the UK and I was able to really understand all of the aspects of operation. I then moved across into operations itself and uh, I started from the ground up in a way as a a duty manager working on the 24 hour shifts uh, along with my colleagues at Gatwick Airport Station. And to be honest, this gave me the first chance to really do operations on the ground, but also understand people management and line management. And I love it. I really have loved the experiences I've had as I've grown up through uh, sort of junior management into senior management on the front line. uh, But also had the experience and opportunity to switch from working in operations to working in the commercial side of the business, primarily doing bidding. Uh, for UK rail franchises in the first instance, and then growing that into an international uh, perspective. So I was uh, the person from Curolis who actually started our business in Australia, which I was very lucky to do. And I moved over to Melbourne back in 2007, 2008, when we were forming the joint venture, um, which we have today, which is, of course, Keolis Downer. So I was living in Australia since 2008, and was focused on the bidding for Yarra Trams and for uh, Metro Trains. Uh, We could only win one, and I'm thrilled that we did, and we we won Yarra Trams. And of course, we've been operating that since. Um, But I then took more time to work in an international perspective, not just in Australia, but actually globally for Cureless, and was in charge of all of our tenders and projects. What I love about my job now is it mixes both the operational and the commercial side um, which is just for me great because i think it's really important to stay in touch with operations to be able to be effective on the commercial side you know the the new innovation the new way we can do things how we can be more efficient how we can provide greater customer satisfaction you're only going to really know that if you can see what's going on on the ground and i also i'm lucky i i get to go out on the ground i get to visit networks i get to spend time with our 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 teams who are, you know, what I'd say doing the real work. Um, And that for me is hugely rewarding.
0: Yeah, great. That actually really leads into my next question, which is around what are some of the key challenges and opportunities that you see in your current role, you know, looking at all of those networks in the Australian, India and Qatar regions?
1: Well, Naturally, safety, I'm going to mention first, um, because it's absolutely key. And without safety, we won't be trusted as an operator. We, we can't you know, exist. Um, and what's very interesting is you get a very different safety challenge I have learned or found in a greenfield operation versus a brownfield operation. A brownfield operation is one that already exists. And in a greenfield operation, at the beginning, you're very much focused on the compliance aspect of safety. You need to get a safety certificate, a safety case to restart. You know, everything is brand new. You're building everything. Your, your um, operational procedures are new. You're building everything from the ground up. And you need to move that from compliance culture into, a, let's say, a safety culture of being. And we've done some great work on the Gold Coast with that, which, is, which was Greenfield, and it, and it still is, and it's been extended, uh, but it's obviously had many more years experience. So great work around um, programmes which switch on safety for all our employees. And we then had the opportunity to bring that from the Gold Coast to Newcastle, um, over to Hyderabad and into Qatar, which is fantastic to have that transversal learning. Beyond safety, I think the the, the key thing then is, and we've got a very immediate crisis around uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, which means that patronage has fallen significantly. In fact, in Qatar and in Hyderabad, our current networks there are actually at a stop. And we all need to work very closely with the PTA client in building back up the confidence of the passenger to come back to, back to public transport. Patronage growth is always in our heart and soul, regardless of whether or not we have the revenue risk. Because for us, it's about growing the patronage, which then becomes self-fulfilling in terms of success of the network. And again, I can point to the Gold Coast, I can point to Newcastle where this has been a huge success and of course on the Gold Coast led us to stage two. But because of COVID-19, we know we've got a greater challenge ahead. And one of the advantages of being in an organisation like Keolis where we operate in 16 countries means we can take learnings from one place to the next. We operate in China and when China was the first to reopen, we took it we took a lot of uh, understanding and learning in terms of how that was uh, successfully and safe, safely achieved. So that's going to be a key challenge going forward. So alongside the operational challenges, of course the development challenge is absolutely a key one. We we have aspirations and we have great opportunities to grow the business. Australia is, is clearly a country which is investing enormously in its public transport and that gives us opportunities with new contracts that have come about, with privatisations that have been happening, such as in Adelaide. And we bid bid those in order to become the operator and maintainer. And it's difficult, I have to say, to know uh, whether you've really hit all of the the, the points that will ensure your success. uh, And that's what makes it challenging.
0: Yeah, some real insights there, Lila. And actually, you've covered a number of topics, which I'm hoping to talk to you about, you know, in this podcast, actually, about COVID-19, the response and recovery, uh, about the Newcastle Network. Um, But let's start first with going back to Yarra Trams, Um, which is the company that's running the tram network in Melbourne. It's the largest tram network in the world. And it's in my home city. It's also the city that is hosting the UITP Global Public Transport Summit in 2021, which we're all very excited about. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you manage that operation? And what does that look like? And what are some of the opportunities that come with that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question. And everybody, I think, knows Yarra Trams. It's what... An enormously iconic brand and a fantastic system and a fantastic network. What they probably don't realise is that it carries 70% of the patronage that the rail carries. People often think it's a light lifter. It's not at all. It's very much a heavy mode and it's a very heavy lifter in Melbourne. So, a lot of the challenges coming from that are, of course, around the fact that we're sharing road space. Um, this brings a safety challenge, this brings a performance challenge. Um, and we're very acutely aware that focusing on making sure we have a sustainable commercial speed for the trams is absolutely key. We have a CEO in place, and of course, he, he has a team uh, around him who are very strong. Uh, it's a complex network because of the age of the infrastructure, because of the varied ages of the trams. I mean, they go from 50 years old to one day old. Um, and that requires then a very much an agile workforce with continual learning and continual development um, with the workforce, which I think is something which means that you'll have a, an interesting job and an interesting career in joining Arrow. It never stops. There's no doubt that the um, the, the, the DOT, is, a, is a, to, to us, to be honest, is a great client because they're a very informed client and they work very much across the network. And when you start to look at the network and you start to think about integration and you start to think, of course, working hand in hand, with naturally with the bus naturally with the rail but also on on the road space as well and the new dot which combines all of that together which means that we pick up as i say in our instance where we're sharing road space it's essential to be close to the the road part of the infrastructure business but also the pedestrian side as well i think it's going to lead to some really great opportunities we're already seeing it things like Uh, traffic light priority things like pedestrian management things like um of course the super stops which we've been installing are all steps to make sure that we have a sustainable network that is really efficiently run and i'm excited about how that's going to i believe mushroom out and grow because it's such an integrated approach by the dot
0: yeah great and for our listeners who might not know dot is the victorian department of transport who oversee the integrated transport network here in melbourne Um, it's really interesting to reflect on what you've said in that it's a large network there's legacy systems and different ages in the fleet and uh to do a bit of a comparison per se um let's talk about newcastle so for, for those people who might not know, Newcastle is a smaller to mid-sized city that's uh, in New South Wales and Keolis Downer there operate Australia's first integrated multimodal network, which includes light rail, bus and ferry. So what have been some of the successes and lessons learnt from that project?
1: That's a good question, Michelle, because Newcastle has so much to it. As well as getting the new light rail, we've also redesigned the bus network, which hasn't changed in more than 20 years. And we like to do a full 360 degree review of what the not just the passengers, but the potential passengers needs are. And, you know, lifestyles have changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So one of the biggest challenges which has led to a success was the consultation process to change the network. Naturally, it's difficult when you are going to have majority winners, but occasionally some, some losers, let's be honest, when you're changing frequency or location of where a bus goes. And people, what you find, are very, very passionate about public transport and are very emotional towards it, which is great. In the end, the results of that change have resulted in increased in, increases in patronage, which is, as you heard me say earlier, absolutely one of our goals. And I think once people understood and once we communicated effectively what those changes were, not just to obviously the public boss, or our own team, the outcome has been one that has been really appreciated. So that's been a big challenge which we've delivered and I believe turned into a success. Complementing that was the introduction of the on-demand service. And the on-demand is, um, I think people will be familiar with, but in this case, it's run by an app um, supported by Via and it's very much running a small sort of minibus style service that comes up and does a um, point-to-point on-demand. It's been great, it's been great. It's grown over time, uh, but now it's become definitely an integral part of the network in Newcastle. And then of course um, the launch of the light rail, which naturally when you're doing something like this has some challenges. I think the the greatest one was around for us very practically, but around the control centre, where we wanted to drive an integrated control centre approach and some decisions have been made by the um, on the construction side beforehand, which meant that that wasn't as straightforward as we'd like it to have been, but we have achieved it. Um, I was lucky enough to be in Newcastle for the launch day, and that was enormously successful, uh, and it's continued since. And it's I think it's really been successful because of the way that the investment that came from um, Transport for New South Wales, the PTA, which improved and changed the... Uh, rail station, so move the rail station. So you now have a a clear interchange point where you step directly off the train onto the light rail and then you can move, of course, all the way down to Newcastle Beach. Um, You're using your same Opal card, so your same smart card, which means that it's seamless transfer and very cost efficient. And what it's done in the city has genuinely has really opened up the city of Newcastle. It's such a beautiful place to go to anyway. Uh, but I think with the light rail now, where people can move around from stop to stop, they can come in on the on the train, which is efficient, and can come up from Sydney, which is very efficient, uh, and then they can move through the city, stop off. There's great places to, uh, from a lifestyle standpoint, you know, you can stop off your coffee, you can stop off your shopping, or you can head down to the beach. So <clears throat> the challenges at the beginning, which were really around the sort of technical side, have been again just blasted away when you get such a fantastic. Um, passenger
0: experience. Yeah, and it really is such a fantastic passenger experience. I mean, I've just been amazed when I've been to Newcastle and the experience that you have riding that network and how much it's just completely changed that city and the way that people move about. Um, and take advantage of of the network there. Mm. It seems to me you have a lot of experience actually in launching networks, um, which I really love actually because in Australia, there's such an increasing focus on new infrastructure and therefore new services. And I wanted to talk about your experience now in Qatar and India, where I understand that you've launched new automated metro systems in both Doha and Hyderabad, which you've mentioned. So could you talk us through your experiences on those projects? it's a good question because there are a lot of similarities and some differences um, despite the fact that two automated metros
1: not least of course the cultures um, very different in qatar to um doha in qatar to hyderabad in india so hyderabad in india um, is a very cosmopolitan city and the metro has been a, an enormous transformational change there we have done that very much from the ground up so in fact with um People being recruited who had no metro experience whatsoever. They uh, were a lot of them coming from colleges, uh, universities and joining us. So the training at the beginning, absolutely key. And I've mentioned about the safety culture, which is very important. But it's also the culture of a customer service ethos as well, which um, in, let's say, uh, in public transport, perhaps wasn't as well established as it might be in some other countries which we work so that's been an absolutely key thing in, in launching in Hyderabad. We also launched it in stages. Um, and as you can imagine, people who had been anticipating this metro were really great, you know, grateful to be able to come and use it. And the ridership has increased significantly very quickly over time. So again, it's been, over the time that it's been operating. So again, it's been key in terms of adapting to the increased ridership. One of the key things, uh, which was part of the contract from our client, who's the PPP owner, l was that the um, people who worked um, in the metro and we employed needed to come from the state of Telangana, which Hyderabad is in. So not only did it mean, as I say, a lot of people without metro experience, but we also recruited people locally. And that had many advantages because they knew the local area, etc. But it did mean that there was a, a lot of training involved. And then if I switch to Doha for a moment, um, just on that people point, which was entirely different. So in Doha, we currently have about 1,100 staff working for us. And then we have, of course, um, some vendors, some subcontractors who work for us. In that instance, we have probably something like 30 different nationalities within the team. So it's a really mixed nationality team. And that's to bring that together. And as I mentioned, it's a joint venture between three companies. So to bring that together and then create a culture of an organization has probably been one of the greatest people challenges because you have people coming with Metro experience from a whole range of backgrounds in different countries. But we wanted people very much to feel part of what's called RKHQ, which is the um, name of the the ownership if you like, um, of the organization. So that brought a different challenge. Uh, Again, it opened in stages, and again, of course, we've had uh, enormous ridership, um, particularly at the beginning, but continual growth uh, throughout. I think one of the similarities is the um, advantage that we have as Keolis having had a lot of greenfield experience outside of uh, Qatar and in India, which meant we could bring that in. I'll give you a small example, but we have a a team, a centre of excellence, who's a centre of excellence for Metro and Light Rail, and they will do audits in the lead up to a launch, um, one year out, six months out, and then, of course, uh, more frequently leading up to it. And that's great because what it does is it brings us a, another pair of eyes to the team who are re- working you know, 24-7 at this stage, really deeply involved, you know, seven days a week, who can actually make sure that we don't leave anything forgotten, anything missed or anything unturned. In both instances, while there were buses operating in those cities, there wasn't any other sort of rail um, transport. And therefore, bringing a culture of public transport to the community has been really key. I didn't mention it in Newcastle, but it was clearly one of our challenges was, again, making people appreciate the safety aspect of having a light rail on a road interface. Well, very much in terms of the metro, which is a Um, automated metro and it's GOA4 in Qatar means that people to understand that it it is safe of course it's a safe operation um, and to to bring in the culture of using it and understanding the public transport and and how it works you and I probably Michelle have the experience of walking through a a gate for a smart card we know where we're going to put the smart card we're looking for it we're anticipating even in a new network because we we have that within our DNA that's not the same in this instance. So there was a lot of customer education as well and upfront customer training, um, even in terms of you know, accessing to the platforms, you know, but being able to step on and off the train, knowing that doors will automatically shut was a real contrast to what people were used to in terms of the transport they'd already taken. So that was a key aspect for us as well.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, just to think about putting yourself in a customer's shoes, um, where they're not used to getting around a network. Um, I mean, they're the things that I take for granted. I, I love getting my card out on, on networks across the world. Uh, Lila, something that's really, I guess, struck me about, um, yourself and your experience is that you do have a really deep commercial and operational background. And I think that's really interesting because traditionally we don't see a lot of women working at a senior executive level on the commercial side of things in performance, finance and operational roles. So can you talk us through a little bit more about your commercial experience and how you developed that? Um, Yes of course I'd love to share that actually and I would recommend to anyone who's listening
1: and thinking about developing their career that if you can have the opportunity and if it suits your your own perspective to work both in what I call commercial projects and bidding and also on the operational side I think it brings a really rounded person an individual uh, to an employer who who's going to find that extremely valuable so I I Recommend it to people when I'm talking to, um, you know, colleagues of mine or some of my team when as, as they make their career choices. So in that first experience at uh, First Group when I was working on the Transpanine Express bid, you know, I, I learned an awful lot. Um, but I think we were all learning in the industry then, and that perhaps was was an advantage. But my I, I certainly understood that what you realise is you don't you don't need to know everything, but what you do need to know is how to access information from others around you. And when we were working on that, we were part incumbent. We were doing it in joint venture with Curlis in actual fact, but we were part incumbent. And of course, the people who um, already work there, they knew, that they knew what the challenges were and they knew what they would like to change for the future as well. They knew what the, the passengers wanted. And so listening, I think, is an absolutely key thing. I then moved on from there. And when I became the big director for the London Midland franchise, which Cureless operated with Govia for, uh, I think, over, well over a decade. Again, learning from the team around me, some of whom had more experience, um, was absolutely key. And I was, I was really, really touched by somebody who said, um, when you first took over as big director, I, to be honest, Michelle, I think he'd wanted the role. Uh, I didn't think I could learn anything from you, but you brought something that, um, that really you know, did change things. And, and I think that's about my, my manner and the way of working. You know, I, I really emphasize on the team, particularly around the commercial when you're bidding, it's all about the team. And I emphasize and put a lot of time and effort into that, um, as well as, of course, bringing my own experience and being in front of the client and negotiating multibillion dollar contracts could be very overwhelming. But actually, in fact, I think you just need to break it down, stay very grounded and, uh, and just remember that wherever you are, the people working around you are human as well.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. And actually, I really liked reflecting on the team component because that's something that I think we often forget, right? And just thinking through my next question, um, I'm imagining the team component's very important because I know you have experience managing the transition of a previously publicly operated network to becoming privately operated and run. And certainly that's a trend that we're seeing in many cities around the world through UITP. And I wanted to ask you, what has that experience been like managing that kind of transition? And what have you learned?
1: Yeah, it does link back to the team, Michelle. There's no doubt about it. And I think, you know, people, when they see changes coming, it's, it's everyone has both, you know, they see, could see it as opportunity, but you also have questions if questions you have concerns no matter which network if we are fortunate enough to become a new operator of a network be it a, a one that's already in in a private sector or in public sector communication during that mobilization and transition is absolutely key and it's true to say that you communicate even if you are not entirely sure yourself of all of the answers i remember standing up on a a podium making a presentation in in london in the london midland franchise i talked about and being human was absolutely an important point. We were refurbing trains, and I remember having a conversation which said, "Yes, we will be renewing the carpets." Why it had come up as a specific question, I think um, it was. It was interesting. It shows that people are passionate and detailed. And, and I made a, a joke about the fact that um, you know we won't let the MD choose the, the colour of the carpet. It should be a it should be a cleaner that chooses the colour of the carpet because they're the ones day in, day out who are trying to bring them back to make sure that they look, you know, in perfect condition. So going back to sorry, going back to that communication being an absolutely key aspect of it. It, it certainly is. Um, and if you are going to change, we tend to not make a huge amount of change right at the very, very start. I think there's a window of opportunity that people want to be able to talk to you tell you what their issues are tell you what they think things should be like and then you need to refine what your plans were we have to adapt and we do and we will adapt that's absolutely key and so we take on board what what the people who've been doing a job day in day out and understand it we take that on board we check we we work together to set the plans in place and then we implement them and then we reward success. You know, we meet those milestones, we recognise it, and we and we celebrate it. We celebrate it together. Um, and I think that's been really, really key in these transitions, particularly, again, you know, coming from publicly operated network. It, it, it sounds like such a small thing, but when we rolled out the new uniform in Newcastle, which we did not do immediately because, again, we wanted to be able to consult with everyone who was going to be involved in uh, uh, in wearing it, that's the key people, the user of it. So we didn't do it immediately, there was a lag, but once we did roll it out, drivers came back in and said, wow, I haven't worn a tie at work for ages, and I've been called sir as a driver. And there's such a sense of pride in what they were doing, uh, but such a sense of recognition now coming from the public. You know, it was a real uplift.
0: I love that. That made me smile, actually, because, you know, I really do think that so many people who work in public transport feel really proud and really privileged um, to do the roles that they do. I wanted to talk now about something you referred to earlier, which, you know, we're in the the middle of a COVID-19 recovery around the world, and certainly it's having an impact on public transport networks in many, many cities. Um, And certainly we're seeing, you know, operators and authorities that are now working on how to bring people safely back onto public transport but also the various issues that come with that and i thought maybe you could share with us some insights from other countries and how they're doing it yes it's
1: been something that's been of huge value to cureless to have that opportunity to learn from other insights so and not just CURLIS, actually sncf as well sncf is the french national railway system and it's part ownership majority ownership of cureless So the first thing is absolutely. I'm I'm going to go back to communication, but it is communication, signage, and reassurance for the for the passenger. By and large, we have been advocates to say about wearing a mask actually on public transport, and the reason for that, Michelle, is not so much you're protecting yourself, but you are actually protecting others. Um, But it's also because we we realise that in order to manage the social distancing guidelines. Now this is going to be quite difficult on public transport you can do that to an extent but the fact is in terms of moving the economy forward people will need to be able to use public transport and we think that the mask means that you will be able to be much more comfortable not to go back to perhaps some of those those loads that would happen in the peak before because i think the whole world has changed in the way it's going to work and we're all much more used to being able to work remotely um, but be able to you know certainly board public transport with confidence so as well as wearing the mask which we which we do recommend um, the signage is absolutely key in terms of people understanding you know how to manage where to stand how to queue how to board how to come off um, so that communication to the passenger has been a, a, a real driver for us as well as that of course it's on our own side what we can do um, now I'll give you the example of Yarra Trams we are now cleaning in Yarra Trams, we are spending six times more on cleaning than we were before. We have, with the in conjunction with the Victorian Government, we have recruited three hundred additional cleaners, which is a boost to the economy because we are all local people from, obviously from from Melbourne and um, the suburbs. But they, but it's also about um, increasing that frequency of cleaning. We're using ozone in order to ensure that the um, the cleaning standards are. Um, the quality which means that 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 we are removing the the, you know any any risk around the the germ transfer and so ourselves we are um, as well as doing the cleaning on the vehicle but of course cleaning the area for the driver and then the training that we've given for the driver to you know have the confidence to be able to um, say when the vehicle is full you know we want our, our own people to be able to manage that as well as following the guidelines that have come from the public transport
0: Yeah, and certainly rebuilding trust and confidence, I think, is a really core tenet at the moment of what authorities and operators are looking at around the world. So, Lila, I wanted to come back to your professional journey and career. And I really want to know, you know, how do you make those big decisions when it comes to your career? And do you have a five to ten year plan or do you just go with the punches and see what happens?
1: (laughs) Yeah look I'm a person who um, is a real planner actually and I have had a five-year plan all the way through my career. Not so much when I left teaching but as soon as I joined the industry I had my sights on uh, particularly job roles and also my own personal development such as gaining an MBA which I wanted to have done by the time I was 30 and you know small little well small but you know important milestones like that. Um, So for me it's been um, it's not been that in the end it's quite turned out how I expected, uh, because you do get opportunities and you have to give them a go and you have to sort of say yes to them. But that that's where I've sort of said, well, keeping an open mind, it's been about a, a continual progress. I mean I've I've like many people, I've had a, a different job every two to three years and my job's evolved or it's been within the same company or it's been a you know d- a distinctive change. Um, but I've been I've been able to take opportunities when they come along. I mean, when I was working in the commercial side and I joined Keolis as a commercial director to be overseeing Keolis's interests in the UK, where it was a minority partner uh, and it was with Go Ahead, the bid director who was due to bid London Midland, um, in the end decided that they couldn't take the job. And I, it was by a chance conversation, I remember it very well, on a Eurostar star with my boss, he said, "Oh, this person has, um, you know, turned it down. We're looking for somebody who could do it. Can you name anybody?" And I said, "Yes, me. I'll do it." And in fact, after having a meeting with the um, representative at Go Ahead and convincing them that I was more than capable of doing this—more um, than capable, probably a little exaggeration, honestly, Michelle—but convincing them that I definitely had the energy, enthusiasm, commitment, and determination—I think it's probably fairer to say—to to go for it. Um, it was agreed. And it's steps like that, that I think um, have really shaped my career. Again, I didn't necessarily have the intentions to work internationally, but I I love what I was doing. And when the opportunity came up to go to Australia, and I'd already been to Australia twice, I absolutely do think it's my second home. Um, When the opportunity came up to go over and to, to work in Australia, I, again, put myself forward. So I think there's an aspect of uh, planning but also putting yourself forward when you see opportunities and, and not being worried too much as to whether they're either a the perfect fit or whether you're truly capable um, you know you will get through it and people will support you
0: i love that lila that's so great um so that kind of leads really into my last question which is what advice do you have for any women listening out there who might be in the early years of their career in the public transport and mobility sector? Well, I
1: think it's always good to to engage with people and talk to people and, you know, ask for help if you need it. You know, when I say help, I mean, you know, ideas, career advice, et cetera, is really useful. I also think it is, as I have said, you know, as I got older into my career, I think the risks have perhaps come greater and you, you probably question yourself more about whether you can do things. But don't underestimate yourself. terms of what you can achieve and as I say there will always be people around to help and support you and I've got I've made mistakes I have made plenty of mistakes and I can tell you of the hours I've spent worrying about them uh, either late at night or you know uh, uh, even afterwards I mean they're imprinted in my memory but I do have a sort of personal rule which is that is it going to matter what I'm worrying about is it going to matter In you know five days time in which case you're crazy to be worrying about it. Stop it It's a very negative unhelpful thing to do. What about in five weeks? Probably not that much in that case Park it, you know it, you park it, you clarify it, you solve it and you move on And then if it's going to matter in five months Well, you take a little bit more time and it's only the things really that are going to matter in five years time Absolutely, then of course really look back on and say right, okay I do spend some time really analysing that, working out how I'd avoid it ever happening again and and what can I do from it. So that advice is saying, look, just don't overworry. I think we reflect so much as women and we expect perfection from ourselves. I absolutely care about the relationships of the people who work for me because I know I can influence their day and and the way that they work and the outcome of what they do. But at the same time, those people probably aren't thinking two minutes about it. So you've just got to keep some perspective. That's what I would
0: say, perspective. (laughs) That's such great advice, Lila. And actually, I remember you sharing that with me at actually our first Women in Mobility dinner um, that we had in Melbourne, which was early last year now, I believe, where you co-hosted. And it was so great actually to really reflect on that, to have that perspective. Um, I think it's useful advice for all of us. I've gone through all my questions. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to make a comment on?
1: it's been a pleasure to do this and I must admit it gives me a chance to reflect back and think of some of the things that I've done in my career that I'm you know really enjoyed and very grateful for Um, and that's I think when it comes down to it once you join the once you join the transport sector I mean we are hugely fortunate to be working in such a forward-thinking sector which is most definitely about um, you know changing cities changing people's lives Um, and so what, what I'd say is um if there's anyone who has questions outside of this i'd be more than happy to you know take them on board or um share anything because the the opportunities and chances i've had i'd love those to be there for everybody thanks so much
0: for joining us this week lila oh michelle thank you very much it's been it's been
1: a great pleasure and i must say it helps me i'm in london right now as you know and it it just helps me stay connected to australia and it's it's been lovely to do this thank you it's a great initiative
0: Yeah, thanks so much. And we're so looking forward to having you visit when you can.
1: Great. I look forward to seeing you soon, seeing all of you.
0: You've shared some incredible insights, and I'm sure our listeners will take a lot away from what you've said. I know I have. I'm Michelle Batsis. I hope you'll tune in again soon for another episode of Women Who Move Nations. Thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of Women Who Move Nations. This series is co-produced by Cassandra Kadelka and Lara Rudd with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Please join us each week as we raise the voices of women in the public transport and mobility sector. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.